0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, I might add, a very special edition tonight of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, just about anything can happen. I've been saying for years now that uh, that time, which was kind of uh, marked out by Art Bell for many, 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 many years has migrated to where it's uh, literally 24-7. And tonight we're going to talk about what could be an historical breakpoint in a 75-year-old scientific, engineering, and most of all, political conundrum, which is, what are UFOs? Are we ever going to find out, as the general public, as the great unwashed... As someone once said, um, what's been going on and what will go on from here henceforth? Well, tonight we're going to be spending three hours discussing all the various moving parts in Washington, D.C. and other places, uh, all the players, all the interrelated, internecine, behind-the-scenes warfare who's trying to be on top, who's trying to control the message, what the agendas might be, what they probably are not. In other words, we're going to do a thorough top-to-bottom review of where we are tonight, given that um, uh, a week ago, the um, uh, DNI, the uh, the president's coordinator of 17 intelligence agencies of the U.S. government, submitted a um, summary of its much more extensive report, which was delivered several days prior to the Congress on the subject of UFOs. Well, I'm sorry. We're supposed to call them UAPs now. You know, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. And we'll get into why the names have changed and about branding and all this, you know, kind of superficial nonsense. The fact of the matter is that a subject which should have been treated at the highest level of seriousness and at the level of national security, almost three quarters of a century ago, is now receiving something of that approach in the 21st century, and we'll see where it goes. Before, however, we get to that, there are some news items I want to kind of uh, get into tonight before we start our conversation. So, if you go to the other side of remember that's our URL the other side of midnight.com click on tonight's banner which says the senate uap report where do we go from here click on that that will take you to the guest page and under the guest page you will see <clears throat> that banner you'll see a, a series of links uh richard and and me and then you'll see danny and joseph and uh Stephen. click on uh me and um that will take you to my items. Item number one, um, you've probably all been following, as I have been following because of uh, Robin's Deep Roots in uh, Miami, this extraordinary, incredible tragedy unfolding in Surfside where, you know, a little over um, 10 days ago now, I think, a entire condominium high-rise, you know, collapsed, at least part of it did, And there are something like 121 people tonight unaccounted for. There are 22 known deaths, and there are incredible complications because in in addition to the high humidity and the fact that they had fires somewhere in the pile, and, you know, it's incredibly unstable. So if you do the wrong thing, the voids where people may be trapped, where there's oxygen and, and, you know, the ability to breathe and to, to, to exist could collapse at any moment. So it's been incredibly difficult to sort through, like jack straws, to get down to where there may be people buried, still alive, still waiting to be rescued. Um, I believe that the historic record is something like 20 days, uh, in a case in Haiti, during the uh, uh, subsequent to the uh, Haitian earthquake. So hope has not run out. The complication tonight is there is a major storm heading for Florida. It was a hurricane. It was a uh, Category 1. It's now down to a very high-strength tropical storm, 60-mile-an-hour winds. The track is taking it up the western side of Florida, but the winds at the surfside location of the high-rise that collapsed with the remains of the building precariously uh, teetering literally teetering. Uh, Engineers have found that interior beams have moved in the last uh, 10 days by about a foot, and that's not good. That's not good at all. This thing could come down at any moment, and the wind loading of a very large building with very large surface area in almost hurricane-strength winds could literally bring it down on the pile of previously collapsed structure, thereby smashing flat any voids in that pile therefore extinguishing any hope of finding life so what they're going to do tonight sometime between now when we're on the air and around 3 a.m eastern time they're going to do a controlled demolition they're, they placed charges they've drilled holes they placed uh, uh, c4 i guess in the in the appropriate locations they're going to try to bring this thing down within its own footprint Um, covering the pile of the previously collapsed structure with a tarp so they can sort out new debris from old debris. And that's all supposed to take place tonight before the storm winds rise and before the uh, wind loading could bring the uh, structure down in uncontrolled fashion. Needless to say, um, you know, my heart goes out to the families because the agony of not knowing, of having these other examples where people have survived for 10 days or 20 days. Uh, There was a case in Italy where I think someone survived uh, for 17 days. Uh, There is extraordinary hope tonight that after all this, they will actually find survivors. So far, uh, unfortunately, they've only found uh, uh, remains and and bodies. And as I said, 22 people are now known to have lost their lives. Um, Moving on. um. Tonight we're going to be talking about this preliminary assessment from the DNI of uh, uh, prior to the actual Senate report either being released or someone leaking it. Um, The report from the DNI, um, the Director of uh, National Intelligence, is not the same as the report. This is a summary and the details are, you know, as they used to say, the devil is you know where. So one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is to differentiate between that which so far has been made public, which is a very light once-over cursory view, and what's going on behind the scenes and what is going on between the lines. Um, there are many, many news reports, and what I'm finding interesting is that the, the tendency of the mainstream media, which for decades has been to treat this subject as either the kind of funny fluffer at the end of the news or to deal with it with a smirk has been very different. I've seen networks treat this very seriously. I've seen uh, Helen Cooper, who was the uh, Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times, being asked by one network to be their UFO correspondent. Um, The term UAP seems to have been nicely forgotten. And so item number two is, I believe, a BBC story, which shows that um, – yes, it is – which shows that um, the way the mainstream media, even overseas, are treating this is they all kind of know that ultimately we're going to get to ETs. Ultimately, we're going to get to what euphemistically you might call aliens, but we have to go through a number of other doorways first. Well, they're kind of going through the final doorway – Already, and so it's going to be very interesting to see how the media treat uh, uh, the potential for hearings, what happens during hearings, etc. 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 So, if you want a kind of an overview of the politics of media coverage, you might want to check out that BBC story. Item number three um, is the report itself. Now, this again is not the Senate report that we've all been talking about This is a summary Analysis or Actually it's not even an analysis It's a summary presentation From the uh, Director of National Intelligence Which is the office set up By the President and the Congress Back uh, after 9-11 To coordinate Between the 17 Intelligence agencies That are supposed to be funneling intelligence To the President So this is kind of like a switchboard, and this is the chairman of the switchboard, the director, and it's his statement, I think it's nine pages, it's not the um, almost 100 pages that the actual Senate report entails, nor will it be uh, uh, the substance of many of the witnesses which will appear at congressional hearings, which in fact appear to be on track, and we will talking in detail about where we stand with that. Item number four. um, uh, That's actually a recurrent uh, um, uh, story tagging on item number one. It's out of sequence. This is merely the governor of Florida talking about the demolition and the fact that there is a a, a tropical storm looming down in Florida. Item number five is, is very interesting because... Apparently, the Pew Research uh, uh, people who do mainstream political polling on all kinds of subjects, they have done, in light of the public interest in UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them, they have done a major poll, and this is the publication of the poll. Um, It's very interesting, very interesting to... uh, 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 see what what they're saying, this particular poll shows that an overwhelming number of um, adults living in the U.S. when surveyed, 65% are answering in the affirmative that they believe that there is life on other planets, and a similar percentage believe that UFOs are indicative of that life somehow coming here. It's very interesting that this breaks down according to some very Uh, other mainstream political lines and we will get into discussions of that uh, later in the morning finally item number six um senator mike revell um who was a really pioneer he's the he's the uh, senator who back in the 70s uh, kind of politically in the uh, u.s senate broke open the um whole watergate thing by reading the pentagon papers on the floor of the senate as part of his uh, duties as chairman of a particular Senate committee, which had nothing to do with national security or or things that go bump in the night or whatever. But he was watching the contretemps between the Pentagon, the New York Times, and the Washington Post regarding keeping the leaked Pentagon Papers secret. And because what uh, senators and congressmen say on the floor of the House and the Senate is inviolable. They cannot be, um, you know, uh, put in prison. They can't be uh, sued. They There are no legal repercussions for anything other than the uh, laws of civility of the House and the Senate on the floor itself. So uh, Gravel chose that moment in time very propitiously to read major segments of the Pentagon Papers, which, of course, removed the veil from what the U.S. had been doing in Vietnam and some of the duplicity and the chicanery around the uh, really, you know, how we got into the war, which was, you know, the Tonkin affair, the Tonkin Gulf affair, which turned out to be a, a, a lie. And so one might ask oneself in all good conscience, will there be another Mike Ravel, who in this current political atmosphere around national security, around UFOs, around uh, the whole subject of what is flying in our skies. It's been in the skies for at least 75 years and assiduously, politically, publicly ignored by the entire U.S. government. It could be one courageous senator or congressman who decides to read into the record, the congressional record, some very important key information. And I have one specific example in addition to Gravel that I'm going to bring up as we uh, move into our conversation. So without further ado, let me introduce our panelists tonight. Uh, Joe Bookman is still uh, not available, but we do have Danny Sheehan with us and we have uh, Stephen Bassett. So beginning at the top, Danny Sheehan is a Harvard Law School and Harvard Divinity School trained constitutional litigation and appellate attorney. For close to five decades, he has worked as a federal civil rights attorney, an author, a public speaker, and college and law educator, helping to expose the structural source of injustice in our country and around the world. He has protected the fundamental and inalienable rights of world citizens and has elucidated a compelling and inspiring vision for the future direction of the human family. His dedication to this vision and his work have placed him at the center of many of the most important legal cases and social movements of our generation. And if you go to the other side of Midnight and click on Bios there on the guest page, you will find a full detail of all the um, cases he's been involved with, which starts with the Pentagon Papers, the New York Times versus the United States. Our second guest this morning is Stephen Bassett. I've known Stephen for, oh, as my grandmother would have said, a coon's age. He's a political activist. He's a disclosure advocate and executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, founded in 1996 to end the government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related phenomena. And you can also read his full bio there at the bottom of the guest page, I'm sorry, at the top, on the other side of Midnight. So without further ado, gentlemen, welcome back to the other side of Midnight.
1: Terrific. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. We're we're, we're here, Good ready to go.
0: Um, I was going to have Joe give us a kind of a background on Gravel because he was a pivotal character and senator and mover and shaker in the whole uh, Pentagon Papers thing. So I'm going to switch, Danny, and I'm going to ask you to give a summary of why we should remember Mike Ravel fondly in light of what's about to happen in Washington on this phenomenon.
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, Well, what happened happened is that uh, back in 1971, in June, uh, it was late, late May of 1971, uh, I got a call from Jim Goodell, who was the uh, chief counsel for and executive vice president, of the New York Times. Uh, I knew I knew Jim because I had initiated the case that established the right of journalists to protect their confidential news sources uh, when I was the founding uh, co-editor of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review uh, back before. And uh, because of that, I was uh, briefing the case in front of the United States Supreme Court uh, on behalf of NBC, well, that were the, it was an NBC uh, journalist that was the uh, major uh, plaintiff in that particular action to get that right established. And uh, I was asked to write the amicus briefs, which are friend of the court briefs and co-briefs with uh, uh, both CBS and ABC television, but also the New York Times and the Washington Post. So it was it was in it was in that context that I got to meet Jim Goodell, Jim Goodell, rather, who was the uh, the the vice president and general counsel for the Times. So I got the call when they they got the Pentagon Papers. uh, They called our law firm to uh, have us represent them to uh, in case the uh, the Nixon administration tried to stop them from publishing. We began publishing on the date of June 13th. Uh, And we had published for three days when uh, I got another call from uh, Whitney North Seymour, who was the uh, United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, who tried to get us to stop publishing the papers. Uh, We refused to stop. And so he brought an action on behalf of the United States government, the Nixon administration under uh, John Mitchell, the U.S. attorney, to secure an injunction against The New York Times to stop us from publishing uh, these documents, uh, at least until uh, Judge Murray Gerfine, uh, the federal judge in the Southern District of New York, had a chance to review them, to determine whether he believed that there was information in the documents that would have irrevocably damaged the national security of the United States if they were made public. Uh, So he he entered this injunction, uh, stopping us from publishing Uh, The papers after three days of publications uh, pending his review of a copy of the documents. Uh, It was at that point that uh, that Senator Gravel uh, in the United States Senate uh, secured a copy of them and said that he was so offended at the uh, Nixon administration having sought and secured a temporary injunction against the New York Times publishing, he began to read them on the floor of the Senate. Uh, And as you pointed out earlier, uh, there's a privilege uh, for any member of the United States Senate or House of Representatives to be uh, allowed to to make any statement they chose to on the floor of the House or Senate, and they could not be held legally uh, responsible for it. They could not be sued for libel or slander. They, they couldn't be sued for anything
0: uh, so again, he, can, I, can I interrupt right. because does, does that apply to issues of confidentiality or top secret national security items in other words if a senator decided to read some top secret or burn before reading report on the floor of the congress could he be attacked legally by the US government for anything he revealed well, no, just
1: just like just like the New York Times couldn't be, you know, that we won that case. Uh, we pointed out that the the uh, it, it it was an interesting decision. I maintained throughout the course of that litigation that because of the First Amendment, uh, freedom of the press, saying that Congress shall pass no law uh, restricting the freedom of the press, that meant that the executive branch, uh, which is in charge of just carrying out the laws passed by Congress had no source of authority, no constitutional source of authority pursuant to which they could secure an injunction to stop us from publishing. You know, in the, in the, Whitney North Seymour, the United States attorney, put the question to us in chambers with Judge Garfine. He said, are you saying that The New York Times gets to make its own decision? And I said, yes, of course, that's exactly what it is that we will exercise care and we will make a decision as what we think is appropriate and is in, in the public interest to reveal. Uh, And we will, we will upon occasion respect the, the national security of the United States, but we don't believe that there's anything in these documents that would irrevocably damage the national security of the United States. And we believe that it's very high in the public interest to reveal the fact that the administrations all the way from Eisenhower basically under Richard Nixon as the vice president all the way through the Kennedy administration into the the administration of Richard Nixon had been systematically lying to the American people uh, that they had actively invaded uh, uh, Vietnam uh, and were attempting to establish a, a United States a military land base uh, in Asia uh, in preparation for their upcoming conflict with China, which they realized was going to come sooner or later, uh, and that that was what they were doing. Uh, and so that the public interest clearly outweighed any even limited concerns that they had about compromising the, the uh, image of the United States in the eyes of our allies or in our adversaries' eyes. So so we we argue that we did have the right to do that. And the same thing is true of a senator or a congressperson. They have the right to reveal on the floor of the of the House or Senate uh, any information that they feel that is of absolute uh, essential nature to tell the American people about. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to get up and read you know, the specifications on how to make a hydrogen bomb, you know, so that anybody can just copy it down and make a bomb. You know, they're, they're, they exercise their own discretion, but the fact of the matter is that the because of the need to to grant uh, great breadth in what it is that the senators and congresspeople are allowed to bring up on the floor and to discuss, uh, there is an extraordinary level of privilege that is given to the senators and to the House members. Uh, just as the New York Times, the case in the New York Times case uh, in the United States Supreme Court said, That there was extraordinarily great leeway uh, that the New York Times had in making that type of decision. Now that I was hoping that we were going to win a majority of the Supreme Court that that took my position, saying that since there was no constitutional source of authority uh, for the executive branch to get us to stop doing this, and Congress could pass no law prohibiting us from doing this, that the judicial branch had no authority as well to try to stop us. Uh, but by a but by a uh, a five to four uh, majority, they they refused to go that far. Uh, we we won people like Justice Black and Harlan and Justice Douglas uh, and others who agreed that we were right. But uh, Potter Stewart, uh, supported by Wizard White, uh, on that court. Uh, basically, thought that well, there there must be some resource that the the federal government had as a whole among all three of the branches to be able to stop us from uh, revealing extraordinarily sensitive classified information. Now, this, this there's no such support for that in the Constitution anywhere. Uh, but the fact is, we've crossed into being a national security state as of 1947 with the passage in December of 1947 of the National Security Act of 1947 that created the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, the National Security Council went on to establish later the National Security Agency, the Defense uh, Intelligence Agency, and others. Uh, but th- those are all implements of a national security state. Well, we're up to
0: 17 now. I and mean, That's why they had to create yeah. an office yeah. of d of DNI to simply yeah. coordinate so they talk to each other. I mean, it... We, we have gone so far into the realm of making everything secret that nothing that citizens should know, particularly on the subject of tonight, uh, has been able to, to be freely published and be believed.
1: Well, that's – but as you've seen that Richard Dolan, uh, who's one of the stalwarts in this area with, the, with regard to the UFO phenomena – you know, has a, a two-volume study that he was doing. He was doing his Ph.D. work as an historian at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and he researched this. and He was able to extract documents from the classified portions of the of our government through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which demonstrated that there was a conscious, uh, sinister program that was underway with the Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI, uh, and the Defense Department. To, to in fact uh, uh, excoriate anybody who tried to report UFOs uh, to destroy their career, to actually destroy their entire livelihood if necessary in order to silence them and ridicule them. And they were using their resources in the uh, national media around the country uh, in the world to, to, uh, to, uh, to ridicule anybody who tried to even make a report. And this, that's why you get all this response inside the national news media and the television news shows and others laughing and making fun of anybody who attempted to report a UFO phenomenon. Uh, and now it, it, we come to this show tonight because as of as of December of 2017, there's been some major shift that has occurred. Uh with the release of three of the uh the uh videos. Taken from the F-18 Hornet uh, gun cameras, we see uh, UFOs in action, uh, and the release of these by Lou Elizondo, who was the former director of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program inside the Pentagon that was assigned the responsibility for investigating the phenomenon, he became so fed up with the way that it was being bottled up and lied about uh, that he resigned in protest. Uh, and released these three videos. Uh, And that is what has catalyzed this extraordinary uh, three years that we've had uh, since then uh, of of a major shift in policy that's going on. But the Defense Department doesn't quite yet know how to respond to all of this. It's not clear that they've formulated an entirely new protocol to decide that they're going to all of a sudden come forward and acknowledge uh, the uh, the extraterrestrial origins of the UFO phenomenon. Uh they, they haven't done that yet. We'll talk in some detail about the report as we work our way into the program tonight. But the bottom line is is that the the New York Times has once again chosen to come forward uh, based upon credible information that was provided to them, in this case, Lou
0: Elizondo. Okay, hang on. Uh, Danny, we're at the bottom yeah. of the hour. My guests this morning are Danny Sheehan. And Steve Bassett and Joe Bookman may join us and he may not. We're having some uh, problems getting hold of him. Extraordinary conversation this morning because with this as precedent, with uh, Senator Mike Gravel reading the Pentagon Papers, which the Nixon administration claimed were in fact um, uh, perilous to the future of the national security of the United States, but with Gravel Under the Constitution, able to read them freely on the floor, has precedent been set for what perhaps will happen when congressional hearings take place pursuant to the current redefinition of UFOs as UAPs? You're on the other side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
2: It's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but what if I use the wrong term? I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors And, and he was sticking up and saying you know they're not getting paid as well they're not getting the jobs that they should be getting and they're being there is no equality but what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors well you've said colored there benedict you can't do that and so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever and so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened you know if you're in a position where I don't know what to say I don't know what to say in the end you'll go well I won't say anything then the fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realise you know when you're phoning up the police and grasping on your neighbours and when all this ends they're still going to be your neighbours and you're still going to have to live next door to them And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Okay, now we good. How do I get back to
1: work?
0: And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday. No, Sunday, Sunday, July 4th. By the way, happy July 4th, everyone. Uh, I saw a brief uh, broadcast from Boston, from the Boston Pops of fireworks over Boston Commons. Amazing display. So, welcome to uh, The Other Side of Midnight on July 4th, this Sunday night. My guests this morning are Danny Sheehan, who has represented some astonishing, groundbreaking constitutional um, uh, epics in American history going back several decades. Steve Bassett, who has been a dedicated advocate for uh, the end of the truth embargo, for uh, honesty and uh, uh, forthcoming uh News reporting of this phenomenon, UFOs, unidentified flying objects, reclassified by this uh, current uh, political juncture of uh, UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. It's like, uh, what is in a name? Where is Shakespeare when you need him? Anyway, um, let me get back to my guests. Uh, Danny, the reason I wanted to start with Gravel is because it occurred to me that if Gravel's speech on the floor of the Senate as chairman of a very, very minor committee was covered by the Constitution so he basically could read anything into the record that he deemed important for the national well-being of the of the uh, citizenry, any senator or congressman in the last 75 years could have done the same thing and blown the truth embargo sky-high from the get-go, so then the question is, why didn't anybody take advantage of this opportunity written into the founding documents of the nation itself? Well,
1: maybe that's that's part of the reason why they have not been briefed in. Uh, the the reality is is that uh, obviously 99% of the senators and congresspeople have never been briefed in on uh, this entire program. That uh, when the uh, the craft was recovered at Roswell in July of 1947, uh, the the equipment, the the craft, and the bodies were taken to Wright Field in Ohio, and uh, the the meetings that took place with Truman, President Truman at the time, resulted in the I believe in the creation of an extra constitutional commission. Uh, basically to deal with this this issue precisely because they didn't trust the Congress people and the senators who, after all, are just limited elected representatives who come and go. You know, they're there for a a handful of years or, or terms as a rule. Even presidents can only have two terms and then they're gone. And so the, a, a decision was made apparently at the highest levels of the national security state infrastructure uh, that, uh, that they, they created the National Security Act in 1947. And they set up a whole series of agencies and uh, special access programs uh, that in fact excluded even very high ranking military officials to keep them from knowing about this information. So, them, so it's sorry yeah.
0: to interrupt, but it would be it would be appropriate then to say that the UFO phenomenon created what is now known in the vernacular as the deep state.
1: Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's you know there were there were other things that that were indicia of, of a a state like that in 1945, for example, even before the enactment of the National Security Act of 1947, in November and December of 1947. In 1945, when uh, when uh, Ed Lansdale, who was the G2 for the U.S. Army in the Philippines, recovered 12 of the troves of Japanese treasure that had been buried by General Yakushima of the Japanese uh, Imperial Army, uh, or Navy, actually, that when they buried uh, 176 troves of treasure in, in the Pacific, 12 of them were discovered by Ed Lansdale that uh, had a value of $1.2 trillion. Oh, my God. Uh, and uh, that information was given to Truman, uh, and Truman set up, a again, a private group, uh, a trust called the Anderson Trust. Uh, the, the, they, they had three people, two of whom were senior partners in Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, Robert Lovett, uh, and a man by the name of Robert Anderson, to be two of the three trustees. The other one was John J. McClone, McClory, uh, they had three civilians that were made uh, the tr- the, tra- the trustees for a private trust that took this these 1.2 trillion dollars into custody and put them in a trust fund, and they manipulated this money to to pay for elections all around the world to keep socialists uh, and people who were too far to the left, who were who were not supportive of establishing a major global power on the part of the United States. The whole national security state people wanted to basically establish full-spectrum dominance over the entire planet, uh, and that they used these monies. Uh, And it was done outside of the normal constitutional channels so that when, uh, two years later, in July of 1947, they came up with this extraordinary find of a, a, a UFO from an extraterrestrial civilization, and the bodies of the of the uh, pilots of the craft. They did this again. They they brought them to Wright Field. They established a a group, whether it's called MJ12, 12, Majestic 12, or uh, Zodiac, or whatever the code names were, that they they established this extra constitutional tribunal of people that were going to be in charge of this. And they they brought in major defense contractors to try to back engineer uh, these crafts so they could develop uh, a unique weapon system uh, to establish a hegemony over the world uh, and over their over the Soviet rivals in that time. So that this this is part and parcel. Now it did not cause the creation of the national security state, but the mentality. That generated the National Security Act in 1947 was prevalent at that time. And they did not, they believed that the people in the executive branch that were in charge of the CIA and the national security state apparatus knew more about how to run the world. Than the individual elected representatives, and so there weren't very many. Prescott Bush appear, appears to have been much in the know. He was a liaison between the Central Intelligence Agency and the United States Senate back before they had any intelligence committees uh, to, to even report these things to. So that there, there was virtually nobody. Uh, in a position like Gravel was uh, back in 1971. There was no one in a position to get access to this information uh, to be able to decide whether or not to reveal it on the floor of the House or Senate.
0: Hmm. Um, okay, so Gravel sets an interesting precedent for the current environment because now that we have a kind of an official admission that this you know the the defense department is seeing something. The navy has footage. Um, there's the discussion of potential hearings. I'll get to that in a minute. If the hearings proceed and witnesses decide to, what's the term I want to use here? Leak, uh, or potential witnesses want Below to want to yeah. Yeah, blow the whistle. If they go to a congressman or a senator and provide them with secret material, secret documentation, and then the senator or congressman on the floor of the House or Senate then reads that into the record. See, when I had a discussion with Stephen a couple, three weeks ago regarding these uh, potential congressional hearings, I said, ultimately, I don't think it's going to be controllable because there's too much of a head of steam from the public wanting to know. Desperately wanting to know that Pew Research poll shows us there's a huge, uh, you know, advance over the general public over the political process. They've already reached their conclusion. They already think we're dealing with extraterrestrials. So my, my question then is, what do you think the likelihood is that in this new environment, someone like Ravel will step forward and try to become a hero uh, a populist on this new frontier of openness
1: well the the closest we have to that now, of course, is Lou Elizondo, who has in fact come forward and uh and brought these three videos to the New York Times uh that in the New York Times board of editors agreed to to publish those and make them public and to prepare a lengthy uh, report based upon uh, interviews of Lou and uh, Chris Mellon and some of the other people from inside, so that that process has started already, but i don't I don't believe at this stage that anybody that's involved in the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, or in the House Intelligence Committee are going to do that. Uh, the, the particular people that are on those those two committees, now that there's this new institution uh, of, a, of an intelligence committee, my, my judgment would be is that the senators are going to think that now that we have an actual Senate Intelligence Committee, which we did not have at the time of Mike Gravel's uh, uh, decision, that he felt compelled to have to make this decision, uh, I think that the people that are that are in the Senate Intelligence Committee have taken very special oaths, uh, and that if they if they were to breach their oath, uh, they would be removed from the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, by the by the, the President of the Senate, it would be Kamala Harris, uh, and the Majority Leader uh, would would remove them from their post. So I don't think that's getting ready to happen. I think that uh, Steve will be able to tell you that there's a there's a much more responsible process that is probably underway right now of trying to stay within the guidelines right now and to take advantage of the existence now of a Senate Intelligence Committee and a House Intelligence Committee and have them, what we've got to do is make sure that the people in those committees are courageous enough collectively to do the right thing. I don't think that there's a, a split necessarily between the two political parties here. I don't I don't believe that there's a party division uh, on this issue. I think that both the Republican and the Democratic Party uh, are, are wanting to be extraordinarily careful
0: mm. about
1: what it is they're doing here. Uh, and so the, I think I think they're going to uh you know for the next several weeks at least they're going to stay within the guidelines they're going to operate within their their uh, security oaths they're going to be reviewing the probably 73 or more pages uh of the so-called classified annex uh, that's been attached to this mere preliminary assessment mm-hmm. uh the public part of it which only has about 6 pages actually of any substance and not much substance at that but but there are some Important concessions that have been made now publicly uh, in writing for the first time by the Defense Department. A very important one, of course, is that uh, even though there's an extremely narrow uh, group of uh, UFO encounters that they've actually reviewed uh, in preparation for this particular preliminary assessment, uh, they've said that the the considerable majority of the ones that they've looked at. They believe are very likely actual physical vehicles,
0: mm. uh,
1: and so there you're. Then now you're into it right now. Okay, okay.
0: Got- uh, I I, I want to get to Stephen and the congressional hearing mm-hmm. landscape in a moment, but I have uh, it's rare that I have a really <clears throat> bona fide constitutional scholar under the microscope. So, Danny, forgive me, but I want to ask if House and Senate members are protected <clears throat> on the floor by the Constitution and able to basically say almost anything they want. What about witnesses? Because what I think is going to be the wild card is given the new umbrella of credibility and given the enormous backlog of stunning documentable data that this government knows and contractors like Lockheed Martin and other places know. When you get witnesses sitting in front of a... Uh, senator, House committee on national television, what if one of those were to basically, as you just said a moment ago, decide to blow the whistle and bring up some extraordinary new information that's not part of the current brief contemporary record, very narrowly restricted. And I'll give you an example. During the Watergate hearings, and this to me was one of those thunderbolt moments, Remember Alexander Butterfield's stunning revelation that Nixon had taped every damn conversation in the Mm -hmm. Oval Office and how that completely upended everything and wound up with Nixon resigning? In other words, I'm looking for a moment like that, and I'm wondering, back to the legal question, are witnesses protected in testimony in terms of whatever they decide to reveal?
1: Well, you you also probably need to know that that uh, I was one of the attorneys at the F. Lee Bailey's law firm that represented James McCord, James McCord, the Watergate burglar in that particular uh, scandal. He's the one that wrote the letter to uh, Judge Sirica, uh, blowing the whistle on Richard Nixon and the plumbers, uh, so that there was already a process underway. Uh, when uh, Alexander Butterfield... Alexander Butterfield didn't just blurt that out to the surprise of everyone in the hearing. That was very carefully choreographed. Scott Armstrong, who went on to become the head of the National Security Archives, he was one of the investigators on the staff of Peter Rudino at that time, who was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee that were conducting the investigations. And it was Scott Armstrong that that came to know about that particular uh, 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 taping system, and he got it from Alexander Butterfield, and they went through a whole process of meeting with with, uh, John Dingell and the other leadership of the House, and they choreographed that whole thing, Uh, so that brings up an extraordinarily important point, that almost never does anything happen in a hearing in front of the Senate or House that isn't choreographed, that isn't pre-planned, uh, coordinated. You know, handing in what their proposed testimony is, and it's either approved or not approved. And if they don't approve what they're going to say, they won't let them testify. This this is a theater that goes on uh, by the elected representatives uh, for the benefit of the people, but it's not it's not a real event for the most part. Mm. Very rarely, very rarely are there real events that take place, such as in the McCarthy hearings when Mr. Welch, you know, confront uh,
0: the um, Joe McCarthy. Have you Uh, no decency, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, the perfect segue to Stephen. Um, I want to loop back to the substance of this trivial nine page summary from the DNI. But Stephen, let's go to you. Where do we stand tonight on this extraordinarily important subject of Congressional hearings based on what is now on the public record?
3: That's a fairly nebulous question. <clears throat> um, I can say that I'm very comfortable with what's, what's happening and the way it's playing out. Uh, I can start with that. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, and, and then I'm, I, I'm inclined to inf- give your, your uh, listeners some perspective here, some background of what we do know. Uh, and there's some si- simple things that may be overlooked here. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> the Department of Defense and, and this task force that was set up very recently at the ONI uh, to uh, uh, have to deliver a report was known to them in July of last year. They've known for a year that they're going to have to come up with a report. Now, the time clock didn't start until the bill was signed in December. Uh, 180 days, and that's what set the quote final date of June 25. But these are very smart people over there at the uh, DoD and elsewhere, and they've got lots of computers and consultants and everything else. So they had a year to plan how they were going to deal with this, and I think people forget that. Um, And then they had six months. You know, six months of that. Of course, when the clock starts, they 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 know what the date was. And so I think everything that you see here has been thought through pretty well by very top people at the Department of Defense and any and other appropriate agency. And so the strategy as it's played out is intriguing to me, but uh, I think well done. It's very well done. What they did was – well, first of all, they did not want, I assure you, to provide to the general public much of anything that they knew that was not good, uh, bad for a number of reasons, so they didn't want to do that, and there were rumors uh, early on that they or well, not too long ago that they were like wanting another three months or so they wanted more time, meaning we would rather just not have to give the public <laughs> anything right now okay uh, but but that doesn't mean they weren't cooperating see, giving the public a lot of information creates all kinds of issues but the real report is what was delivered to the House and Senate. Uh, that was delivered around June 16, 17. Now, not known. We know that uh, we, we think it was 73 pages. We know that the House Intel uh, and Armed Services Committee got a briefing uh, involving the FBI. and That 73-page report. We know the Intel Committee of the, the Senate. And I, I have to assume the Armed Services because they've referred now to these four committees as kind of the committees that are involved. I also got the briefing, so let's just let's just assume that these four key committees—House Intel, House Armed Services, Senate Intel, Senate Armed Services—have seen the seventy-three report. They've gotten a briefing from one group or another, and that was back in June sixteen, seventeen. Now they've had all this now for what is it, fourteen and three, seventeen days. <laughs> Meanwhile. And then, by the way, before that report was delivered to the House and Senate, you may have forgotten that a, uh, a not a leak—I don't know if you call it a leak—but the New York Times obtained information about the public report. Uh, this is all the way back in June three. Uh, so they, they deliberately they fed to the New York Times some information about the public report, uh, and there was really only two things that that the New York Times reported. And that was that they um, concluded that the – there was no evidence in the uh, reports they looked at, the cases they looked at, pointing to extraterrestrial, but that the technology that was observed was not something that was in the possession of the United States. And this created a bit of news, but not a lot of news. It was very significant statements, uh, both not quite true, but nevertheless very significant. And that was deliberately given to the New York Times and was published. But by and large, and I've chronicled most of the articles. There have been, God, several hundred, uh, have focused on this. This, this, the public report, June 25, June 25, June 25. Okay, so what they did was they made a compromise with themselves. Uh, they knew they couldn't simply not put out anything on the 25th, and so what they did was they put together the quote preliminary assessment, which is really not much. In fact, it, the, the most important thing in the preliminary assessment is, in fact, what was leaked in the New York Times back in early June. Right? So we, we, uh, we don't see extraterrestrial in this evidence, but uh, whatever that uh, is up there, uh, we don't have it, all Right? Mm-hmm. which is, again, very significant. And then there's a bunch of, uh, of DOD speak and lots of acronyms and a few other things. There are a number of complete outright lies in this thing, but that's OK. They, they can't tell the truth at this point. Uh, And so they fed out this small little report and then announced shortly thereafter that in three months there would be another report. Okay, so you see the strategy here? What they've done is they've managed to give the public very little. They've then strung the public out for another three months, which may be moot. Meanwhile, the House and Senate key committees have had this stuff for 14 days. The Senate left on recess on the 25th, 26th. And they won't be back till the 12th. So they're going to have another 16 days, uh, all of those members. And then the the House had a few more days in session. They're going to be gone for quite a while. Uh, And so they've given the House and Senate a lot of time to look at this classified material and whatever they were given verbally, whatever briefing they got, and contemplate what to do with it. Meanwhile, all the focus is on the public report, which ended up not being much – all right. Well, hang on, hang and.
0: on, hang on, because if it if it didn't mean very much, nine pages, six pages, whatever, uh-huh. the other night I chanced, to, as I was going, you know, through the dial on television, on History, on Travel Channel and Discovery, Got simulcast it. to millions of people, there uh-huh. was a three-hour live special on this report called UFOs Declassified Live. Yeah. And that's based on nine pages of – I kind of agree with you. It was very, very tightly worded and very carefully worded to be an almost – It wasn't very carefully worded. Nothing. There's
3: some stuff in there that's hilarious. I mean it's
0: ridiculous. Well, yeah, but for the general public, look at it – not like you and I and, and Danny look at it. Look at it like the general public. For the general public, when you start out a a defense intelligence report saying – This phenomenon represents three times, they say in the first paragraph, a threat, a threat, a threat, not a qualified, not a potential, but they call it a threat. That gets people's attention, and that got three hours on three major networks that are watched by millions of people, and we're not even into the foreplay of this yet.
3: Dick, uh, we're talking about two different things here. Okay. There have been scores and scores of articles written about this. Quote report, uh, leading up to it, and since there, I've got them all on my website now. We're getting up to hundreds, and then there's three-part series and everything else. Just because there's a lot of coverage, just because people want to spend three hours talking about it, doesn't mean it's important. It isn't that important, but it's great. I mean, look, we'll take all the press we can get and if people want a podcast that's great i mean all of that is generating the public interest and awareness and so forth i'm talking from the point of view of the government here you want to talk about hearings and we got to talk about the point of view of the government because that that's the government's going to make these hearings happen by and large all right but there's a three-dimensional chess game going on multiple partners and you got to kind of watch the whole thing and what i'm trying to say is is that they the strategy that they had a year to plan was Give a classified significant report to the key committees, keep the pressure off them, get the focus on a public stuff. that You're not going to give them much. Then you're going to say, hey, 90 more days will give you something more. Mm. And that gives the House and Senate, these four committees, plenty of time to decide how to proceed with what they've got now, which means uh, that they what, have plenty Steve, of time we, to make decisions we're the, about.
0: We're at the top of the hour, so hold it act. there. My guests this morning are Steve Bassett. And Danny Sheehan, we're talking about the DNI preliminary assessment of UAP, the new government speak name for UFOs. And we've just gotten started. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Over and out.